Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today I get to speak with Dr. Shri Padma, who is visiting professor at the University of Chicago um, and also affiliated with Bowdoin College. We're talking about an interesting publication of hers on the goddess. It's called Vicissitudes of the Goddess, Reconstructions of the Gramadevata in India's Religious Traditions. Uh, Shri, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So what's your book about? Your book is about Grama Devatas. Uh, maybe say a tiny word on what a Grama Devata is and, and the, the central thrust of your book. Okay. What is Grama Devata? Grama Devata. <laughs> Grama Devata is basically the translation of that is um, goddess of a, a village, any village. So um, Grama Devata basically is worshipped directly by devotees um, without uh, any Brahmin priestly mediation um, and therefore without elaborate liturgical Sanskrit recitations. I'm saying this because usually people imagine Hindu temple and when you go into um, the temple, they usually have Brahmin priest mediating. Whereas in uh, um, the worship of Grama Devata in these villages, you would not find uh, a priestly mediation. Usually the goddess is um, addressed in uh, the local vernacular uh, with an uh, accent on familiar terminology. Um, so most frequently she is known uh, in familiar terms. Uh, such as mother or elder sister, or at times she's also addressed with the respectful and formal term, madam. Um, in the instance of her transition into a Brahmanic deity, a Gramadevata might acquire the Sanskrit suffix, that is Amba or Ambika or Devi. You know, all these are, um, you know, so, uh, goddess or mother in respectful forms. The priests and priestesses of uh, the Gramadevata are mostly from non-Brahmanic castes and um, play a major cultic role only at the time of uh, special festivals. So these characteristics are usually typical, um, although in uh, fast-changing contemporary Andhra um, or even uh, in larger Indian society, exceptions are um, quite common. And so what does your book argue about Grama Devatas? Okay, so I probably would, um, as a way to respond to your question, um, I will state four major um, takeaways that address uh, some major misconceptions about fertility goddess. Um, So I will take it from there. Uh, And you can ask me if uh, um, that isn't answering the question. Uh, first, even if it is agreed that many agricultural societies, including India's, venerated fertility goddesses for centuries, given the popular orientation of the cult, the general scholarly understanding is that it is impossible to establish a coherent history about them. This book challenges this notion by tracing various transformations of fertility cult over millenniums. 
Secondly, widespread understanding among scholarly circles is that the goddess is essentially a divine feminine. Through illustrations of art forms of various periods, this book expands the conception of goddess, directing reader to various manifestations of the goddess that include nature in its many aspects. A third misconception is India's emergent major religions have very little in common with the fertility goddess traditions. In this book, I make a case that fertility goddess traditions not only are inextricably intertwined with these Indic religions, but the goddess traditions enriched these religious traditions by providing them with an artistic vocabulary, a mythic imagination, and an opportunity to develop a rapport with the general village, social, and cultural milieu. One final but equally important takeaway from this book is the integral connection between the village goddess and human woman, presenting case studies of actual women of different ages who have been deified. I discuss in this book the ways female power is understood and processed and its ramifications on gender relations in Indian society. So let's engage maybe the first of those. Um, you talk about the the the, the, the antiquity or the, the, the these sort of ancient um, you, know, you know while you admit that one can't trace a, a, a coherent historical trajectory, you do trace these Brahmadevatas back to very ancient times. Why don't you tell our listeners about that? Hmm. Yeah, um, I think I um, will start with an example. So I have traced the village origins for goddesses famous for their Brahmanic affiliations in um, United Andhra Pradesh, uh, such as Kanaka Durga of Vijayawada, Hadrakali of Warangal, and Mahankali of Sikindrabad. A close look at the background of Kanaka Durga through the study of inscriptions and um, iconograph forms displays an interesting mixture of uh, various cults and historical transitions. A fertility goddess in the agricultural and household context was worshipped in her naked form. When the goddess was seen as the bringer and curer of diseases, or as a battle queen by rulers who adopted her as their guardian deity, she manifested ferocious forms and served the common people and the rulers in her respective attributes. The cults of two deified women were also majored into the cult of Kanakadurga. From time to time, the goddess also incorporated aspects of the ferocious tribal cults, such as Durga, as illustrated in my book, and it managed to retain relative independence even after becoming Brahmanic, in which context she is shown in pleasing countenance as the wife of Siva. Somewhat similar history is shared by the goddess Patrakadi of Oranga, a mixture of uh, many goddess cults of Brahmadevata and royal guardian deity from the 7th century. The ferocious form of Patrakadi's stone image is softened by many measures, including breaking her protruding tongue before ceremoniously reinstalling it. Portraying pleasing forms of the Gramadevata can be attributed to the success of medical science in preventing communicable diseases for humans and domestic animals. 
unlike in these two cases, the goddess Mahankali in Sikandrabad does not possess any history of royal patronage. Neither this goddess was originally a local Gramadevata. But her cultic history traces the transition from Gramadevata to Pramanic goddess. According to the temple lore, the cult was introduced a couple of centuries ago by a devotee of a famous goddess Mahankali of Ujjaini in the former state of Madhya Pradesh. The goddess became so popular that a century or later or so, um, funds were raised to build a temple and install a newly made stone image with Vedic rituals by Brahmin priests. As I have explained in my book, there uh, there were many tribal cults in history that measured with uh, Gramadevata cults as a part of assimilation of uh, various tribal people with the mainstream village society at various points in time. Some of these entered the Brahm- Hindu Brahmanical mainstream to become conflated with the uh, popular goddesses such as Durga and Kali, who themselves went through the same process. For example, for the last half century or so, tribal goddesses Samakka and Sarakka in Western Andhra, which is now part of newly formed Telangana state, have started to attract large Hindu populations. The Koyas are a hill tribe who traditionally live in the forest in Warangal district, which is now a tiger reserve and who perform annual festivals to these goddesses following tribal rites. The popularity of this annual festival among Hindu devotees increased to such an extent that since 2010, the state government has been involved in bringing offerings to the goddess. The Hindu devotees not only brought many Brahmanic elements to the ritual, but started setting up the images of the goddesses in temples in other regions of Telangana to celebrate annual festivals. It is possible that this cult, like some tribal cults, will eventually merge as an extension of a Brahmanic cult. In fact, songs, videos, and a new Tollywood film have been made for the consumption of Hindu devotees who want to identify Samakka as Sekti, the preeminent goddess who rules the whole world. She's also, of course, identified as Siva's wife and Vishnu's sister. The images distributed as Samakka also reflect an uncanny resemblance to the great goddess Durga. In this imagery, Samakka is riding a tiger and Saraka a stag. So you link uh, modern Gramadevatas to the Indus Valley context, do you not? Yes, um, I do. Um, in looking at symbols um, and tracing the um, symbols that how some of these symbols have been uh, in use even um, in the contemporary uh, rituals to the Gramadevata. I didn't mean to start um, from Indus Valley and um, try to force um, that connection to the Gramadevata. But as I've been examining, tracing um, the contemporary mythology, um, the um, rituals, the symbolism, um, and going through inscriptions, what we can learn and whether um, the form of Gramadevita worship existed in um, early times. Um, and that brought me to the earliest period, prehistoric period in Andhra Pradesh 
where I examined, um, I came across these symbols uh, in burials um, in uh, of fourth uh, century before Common Era, and those like symbols like swastika um, and srivacha. Um, all these symbols of uh, the goddess um, are also seen, I realized, in uh, Indus Valley seals and ceilings. Um, that's how I am interested in um, these uh, symbols and their connections. And uh, um, so, uh, and then in between Indus Valley period and fourth century before Common Era, you know, this, uh, this post Indus Valley. Uh, times what happened and how these uh, symbols turn into kind of naked go goddess. Um, and the evolution can be seen uh, in a pictographic form, either sculptural representations or um, representations in uh, coins. Um, then I trace that evolution. Um, for example, I take uh, a part symbol for, you know, part represents the womb of the goddess. So how this part is still in worship, you know, parts uh, play an important role. Women carry parts full of water uh, or parts with food on their heads to, uh, in goddess rituals, in procession, uh, to bring them uh, to the goddess and they also act as representations. And on these parts, they also um, paint these symbols, swastika, srivatsa, etc. Um, so this part is um, worshipped in part shape in the beginning, but then even in Indus Valley period, you see, and the part has legs um, and uh, showing um, those parts in uh, three different representations. So you can see they also have face. Uh, you know, part has a neck, natural neck, but over that neck, the neck is depicted as a face in Indosales. And that happened again um, in uh, early medieval times in Andhra Pradesh, you see sculptural representations. So slowly the part uh, takes this uh, anthropomorphic shape of um, the goddess. Um, so, um, and uh, almost towards the end, the head is the only um, one that's not represented in these uh, evolution, but head is was replaced by a lotus. Um, and before it became completely a naked goddess. Even when she is represented as a naked goddess, is like a giving birth to a child, um, you know, with flexed legs, uh, still her head is like a lotus. Uh, and in seventh century, many of these images, uh, stone images, uh, were in worship and there are inscriptions proving that. And some of these images, in fact, are um, worshipped even now, in the, which means the worship is continued without any broken line. Um, like in Karnataka, um, there are many uh, instances. You know, one of, um, it might be useful if you talk about these categories of Grama Devata uh, versus popular goddess versus fertility goddess and and how do you how you use them in the book uh how they relate to each other in the history of, of indian religion you know tell us about these categories grama devata um there is a sometimes you cannot separate grama devata from a fertility goddess grama devata actually is fertility goddess um with a few exceptions, I would say, um, I think by describing the characteristics of Grama Devata, you will understand the connection between 
fertility cult and gramadevata i guess um so various symbols used to represent the fertility goddess were the gramadevata so i used as a synonymous fertility goddess and gramadevata but the way i used fertility goddess the term terminology is um that fertility goddess in pre uh, modern times because there was an argument oh gramadevata did not have any history so i said to prove yes there was history so what was she called was she called as gramadevata and who was she so and i have all these symbols that i was explaining and this uh, shows the fertility aspect of this goddess so i termed that fertility goddess um, that in contemporary times we ca- call gramadevata uh, so otherwise um, the gramadevata present who is fertility goddess but we call fertility goddess in the past that's for my use in my book um, but the various symbols used to represent the fertility go- goddess um, still articulated by aspects of her, her current mythology reveal that the nature of the gramadevata has been complex from the time of its known origins uh, possibly as i said as early as in indo civilization moreover the fact that um, the goddess seems consistently to have been conceived in paradoxical ways has produced a multi purpose and adaptive cult for example because the gramadevata has been understood essentially as a shapeless and even genderless procreative force her imagined forms reflect propensity to assume a presence in virtually any inanimate or animate beings that conform to a logic of association with her power as such the gramadevata has often been imagined as a human female figure giving birth to nature as a mother who bears the universe in her womb in this sense she is a creation as well as creator she is also seen as capable of destroying what she creates what is new in my study is that the symbols images and mythology of the ancient fertility goddess correlate with the contemporary understandings of the gramadevata as a creator nurturer and destroyer she may be worshiped as the the body of the village with her navel stone planted in the center of the village or kept at a safe distance at the edge of the village in the former instance she brings fertility and uh, prosperity to the villagers by bringing timely rains if worshiped properly in the later she is a goddess of foxes or other forms of illnesses afflicting humans domestic animals birds and crops who needs to be appeased so that she will stay away whether she is a loving mother or a wrathful cow punishing villagers for their missteps the gramadevata remains an integral feature of village identity and how does this fit into this um what you call the popular goddess or this sort of uh, brahmanical uh, appropriation of these goddesses are they ultimately separate i mean you make an interesting argument in terms of how they relate Mm, yes um they are separate but they also evolved into brahmanical goddesses they still remain separate most of them uh, but um, some of them became brahmanical goddesses uh, like i was talking about naked goddess um how the naked go- goddess evolved into 
Lashmi um, by Vaishnava, it's how she was um, integrated as a goddess who is, I mean, in the beginning, you have Lashmi figures, naked Lashmi standing with uh, um, elephants flanked by two elephants pouring water on her. Um, and this was early centuries, first century actually, before common era, sorry. And, um, uh, and then uh, even in Andhra, we have um, these uh, goddess uh, in the beginning trying to mediate between Saivites and Vaishnavites when they had trouble with each other. And then um, the goddess also is being transitioned Vaishnavites were adopting her as the figure of, um, like, um, in uh, decorating, like, Vishnu's chest as Srivatsa, a symbol. That symbol was adopted uh, by Vaishnavites. And then Lashmi, in, in her anthropomorphic form, still stays uh, in his chest. Sometimes you can see uh, just the Srivatsa mark. Uh, but anyway, so she becomes Lashmi uh, and in um, um, Vaishnavish um, imagery and uh, Parvati in Saivite imagery. But as soon as goddess enters these traditions, um, she is clothed appropriately and so that it meets the standards of these traditions. Is there anything else about this book that you would like to share in terms of its main takeaways? I think I have mentioned um, the major takeaways uh, to begin with, I guess. Yes, the, in the beginning, this is, as I said in one of uh, the first takeaways, they, there was this assumption, uh, which I said to um, challenge, and it was challenging to me as well um, when I start working, and I wasn't sure how much um, I will um, be successful in this uh, attempt. Uh, so, but at the end, it was uh, worthwhile in uh, at many levels, actually, um, in the sense that these uh, various, not only, it, it came as a surprise to me when I was rebuilding the history of goddess, and I came to realize that how um, the goddess not only predated with all these uh, traditions, but came to influence these um Indic religions, um, such as Jainism, Buddhism, um, what we call Hinduism, the Vaishnavite, Saivite orientations. Um, all these religions, uh, you know, the goddess influenced in many positive ways, you know, providing all this, uh, you know, uh, imagery, vocabulary to these religions. So that itself is a revelation even uh, to me as I, you know, I didn't realize. Um, two things I didn't realize. One is the connection all the way can go back to Indus times. Um, because a lot of times, you know, still a lot of scholars, or we are not sure, a lot of aspects that continued what we see in Indus times uh, into later periods. So, uh, so we have to be uh, really uh, careful about um, trying to trace it to Indus period and that uh, not really proving the continuation. But in this sense, I see this clear continuity um, that, um, you know, started in Indus times. And that's one revelation. The second revelation is I didn't have any idea that goddess played uh, a crucial role in uh, the development of these Indic religions, uh, especially Jainism and Buddhism, you see as ascetic religions. And uh, you would think um, 
very little that um, connection with the goddess traditions. So, so those two are um, really um, uh, surprising elements even to me when I was, you know, doing research. So I hope the readers also find that um, as a, uh, a revelation. Let's do a, a tiny thought experiment, if you'd like. Let's, let's assume that you were charged with creating a course about um, uh, the goddess or uh, say Shaktism or the uh, India's feminine divine, shall we say. Let's just say you're creating a course, whether it's or, or a lecture series, right? And, and your job is to present uh, India's feminine divine to an audience, whether undergrads or continuing studies. I'm curious as to how you would organize it. Uh, like, like for myself, I would have a unit probably on Vedic goddesses, all uh, mm-hmm. goddesses. Uh, I may have a unit on Tantra. I may have a unit on what I consider village goddesses or Brahma Devatas, popular goddesses. You know, it seems to me that, well, well let me not beg the question. How would you organize a course on presenting uh, India's goddess tradition, do you think? Um, actually, um, I came to Harvard uh, University um, as a, a research associate and visiting lecturer. Um, and uh, the course I taught there was um, images of a feminine. Um, uh, in, so actually, the basic question in that course was like, um, I guess it's very traditional. It became traditional, I guess, why um, the goddesses um, are elevated in Indian um, society or in Hindu society. And while the woman, at least assumed, are, you know, I guess it, to a large extent it is true in all cultures, um, you know, subordinated. So that was the question I was exploring. Um, so looking at, um, you know, these goddesses, various goddesses, and their, um, you know, as uh, feminists in this, uh, in the West, uh, are so fascinated by the goddess Kali, who is a very powerful image. And then you have um, women in a subordinated position. Naturally, that question uh, crosses everybody's mind. So, um, so I taught that course, um, and it was um, really, um, really fun. And, you know, like looking at um, uh, some film, uh, and also looking at the early devotees like Andal, you know, these saints, uh, and then these goddesses, um, and uh, you know, like. Uh, uh, um, but um, that particular course, I, I taught many iterations of it. Um, the last time I taught was last year at the University of Chicago. And uh, I used my book as a theme this last time uh, and then arranged other um, uh, readings to go with that theme because it, my book um, not only talks about the history of goddess, uh, goddess symbols um, and uh, also case studies of um, and mythology of various goddesses, village goddesses and case studies of uh, the transition of these goddesses from village to uh, urban setting or um, Sanskritized goddesses, how they enter these um, Indic traditions, big Indic traditions. Um, but also I look at the deified woman uh, of different ages, how 
sometimes these deified women um, met with the Gramadevata or village goddess cult, uh, or sometimes um, stand out for themselves as um, deified. But what uh, social issues they um, bring about and how the, you know, what, what are the reasons behind this deification? Is this guilt? Um, you know, so, so I'm looking at um, this uh, divine feminine on the one hand and human on the other human uh, feminine, um, how she is received in the society and um, and where, um, you know, this divinity, um, you know, uh, starts and where the humanity comes in play. Um, so, um, so that was really very, very satisfying um, last year. And, and also it made a huge difference, like at Harvard or um, the University of Chicago, you have graduate students. Um, so the level of discussion uh, is much more, um, much more refined. Um, so you get more satisfaction, I guess. Um, yeah, uh, I do not know whether I answered all the question you have in mind. Um, it's, it, it, I've said this before, I'll say it again. It's always about the scenic route to draw out themes of conversation. So there is no, um, <laughs> there is no finite answer to my questions. They're meant to be generative uh, rather than uh, comprehensive. So um, are you still working on The Goddess? What are you working on now? Before we close, why don't you tell us what, we're, what you're working on? Oh, um, <laughs> I think uh, this is very, very different um, research I've been doing um, in recent years. So uh, I actually am involved in two research projects right now. Um, um, unlike my other research, um, the venue for these projects is in Sri Lanka, not uh, in Andhra Pradesh, where I come from. Um, but I also spent um, so much time in Sri Lanka that became my second or third home, whatever you call it, because America is my second home, then Sri Lanka becomes my third home, I guess. So I um, uh, directed a study abroad program for uh, 20 plus years, uh, uh, American undergrad program in Sri Lanka. So I worked with the staff, I worked with the university that we are affiliated with in, uh, in Candy. Um, and I set courses, and uh, um, so I um, developed a lot of relationships as well as understanding their culture and learning the language. So that brought me into Sri Lanka. And so the, uh, the first research, you know, full treasured research project, I should say, because I published another book was kind of a, a fiction and historical fiction is uh, fractured bliss, but this first real full pleasure research project is um, a cultic history of Vibhishna, uh, an important character in the Indian epic Ramayana. Um, so I made considerable progress on this project. Um, unlike in India and Southeast Asia, where the epic is popular, in certain parts of Sri Lanka, Vifishna is worshipped as a guardian deity. Uh, so far, I have published uh, a couple of papers on uh, different aspects of uh, the Vifishna cult. Uh, one of these uh, two papers uh, forms part of a special section of uh, the 
Journal of South Asian Studies, um, which I have co-edited with the title Lankapura, the legacy of uh, the Ramayana in Sri Lanka. So that, that's my first project. The second project is, again, very different, an examination of uh, the state of uh, traditional medicine in Sri Lanka since uh, colonial times to the present. So mm-hmm. like in India, Sri Lanka has a variety of uh, traditional medicine practitioners. Um, variety of traditional medicine is being practiced. So my research is focused on those practitioners whose families are in the traditional medicine um, for generations. I have interviewed a sample of these uh, practitioners throughout the island uh, to study the diverse medical traditions and also their complex histories. So that's what um, I'm trying to do right now. Sounds sounds interesting. Sounds fascinating. Uh, particularly the the, the the project about the Vishnu. Now they both sound fascinating. Uh, I might be slightly biased because any <laughs> <laughs> sense of narrative, but either way, I'm glad that you're you're you that you have no shortage of interests. To pursue. <laughs> and so I think we've taken enough of your time for uh, one day. So uh, we will close now. Um, for those of you listening, we have been talking about uh, uh, the vicissitudes of the goddess, um, reconstructions of the Brahmadevata in India's religious traditions. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. Sri Padma, who's a visiting professor at the University of Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Until next time. <laughs> Be safe. Uh, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the Hindu goddess. Take care.